0: Hi, everyone. It's good for us to be able to be together again in this way. I'm glad you've set aside some time to study God's Word, and I pray that as we look at this passage together, God, through his Holy Spirit, will come and speak to each of us deeply and personally. We continue with our series through the book of First Peter, After Suffering Glory, and we come to a very interesting section. We're going to have a look at what Peter has to say to Christian wives and husbands. Remember that from chapter 2 and verse 13, Peter has been describing how we are to live as believers in an unbelieving world. He began this section by laying down a general principle for us to follow in all of our relationships, and we'll come back to that in a moment, And then he addresses our responsibilities as Christians in the various roles which we have in society. We've already looked at how Peter says we are to live as citizens. We've had a look at how we ought to live as employees. And today we're going to have a look at how we are to live as Christian wives and as Christian husbands. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives. If I thought I was tiptoeing through a minefield last week, then today's passage really has the potential to be explosive. It's very tempting just to skip over verses like these then. And that's one of the beauties, as well as the challenges, of exegetical preaching. Going through a book of the Bible a few verses at a time, It forces you to look at verses and study verses and apply verses that perhaps ordinarily you'd be tempted to overlook. And yet these verses are incredibly important for us in the situation in which we find ourselves at present. This past week I saw a news article that reported that one legal advice firm in South Africa recorded a 20% increase in divorces during our months of lockdown. Many couples were forced to work from home. Many had to navigate their children's schooling at home at the same time. The anxieties around their health, concern for their partners and relatives and children, uncertainties about the survival of their jobs, the fragile economy, navigating online work and online schooling – have placed a tremendous strain on relationships. Another news article described some of the reasons for this in this way. Couples have been compelled to spend considerably more time together, often unmasking flaws in their marriage, causing them to re-evaluate their relationships and lives together because they had more time for introspection and reflection. Before COVID, there were many distractions in everyday life. Going to work, business travel, and socialising. Couples could spend some time away from each other. Going to work for eight hours provided some buffer for relationships. The couple could get time to experience other relationships, which may have provided an opportunity for different perspectives and healing. But being in the same space, 24-7, They were now forced to confront the true essence of their relationship. So, folk, I approach this section with real fear and trembling, because the stakes are extremely high. Lives are at risk. The lives of husbands and wives and of their children, too. And so I'm going to be going through these verses as slowly and carefully and helpfully as I possibly can, Let me also just say that I'm deciding to preach slowly through this passage for my own sake, as much as yours. There are lessons here that I need to be reminded of, and that I need to put into practice in my own marriage. I'm not sure exactly how many weeks we'll spend on these verses, at least two, maybe more, but it's really important for us to go through this passage slowly and carefully. In preparing for this sermon... Among other things, I read Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, which is really an excellent little book on the subject. I bought a copy for about 250 rand and then discovered that Bargain Books was selling it for 70 rand. It's really well worth getting hold of, and I'm going to try and find a few more copies uh, to give out to you if you need one. He based the book on eight audio sermons, which I've also purchased, and I'll try and include a link to these sermons on the WhatsApp group. I'm fairly sure that the thoughts in his book and sermons have made their way into my own sermon, too. Well, let's have a look at the passage. We're going to be focusing on 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, but we'll read all the way down to verse 15, because the broader context is very important and helps us avoid some misinterpretations of these verses. Peter writes, Wives, in the same way be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewellery and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech, He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. This is God's word. I think that when we read through these verses, there are a couple of phrases that jump off the page and cause a deep emotional reaction within us. Phrases like, Be submissive. Obeyed and called him her master. Weaker partner. One of the great tragedies of church history And a tragedy that still exists in parts of the Christian Church today is how these phrases have been misinterpreted and misapplied and have become weapons of oppression, so that they have even contributed to the sexism that exists in our society, which in turn is one of the foundations for atrocities like gender-based violence. We'll get to those phrases in due course and hopefully give a much more biblical interpretation of them. But I think that these phrases overshadow a few other very important phrases in the passage. And so before we address things like roles in marriage or how to handle a less than perfect marriage, I want us to examine these phrases and try and paint a picture of what God intended marriage to look like. I think that that would be a better starting point than diving in and describing five steps to a healthier marriage, although I do believe Peter does help us in that way. Instead of doing that, I want to look at the vision of marriage that Peter gives us in these verses, because if we have a vision of what marriage can be, that will motivate us and inspire us to move in that direction and inspire us to take the practical steps that might be needed to gain that kind of marriage. It would be a little bit like a teacher trying to get one of her pupils, Johnny, to study geometry. She could either sit him down with a textbook and explain all of the theorems again and again and get him to hand in large amounts of homework, or she could take him along to her brother's architectural firm and allow him to watch the architect design a house and draw up the plans for it. A vision of what he could become will be a much greater motivator for Johnny to complete his maths homework than just the dull drudgery of being told what to do. And a vision for what our marriage could be, and what our marriage was intended to be, will be a much better context for us then to address some of the practicalities of marriage in the weeks that lie ahead. So let's have a look. In these verses, Peter describes for us the power of marriage, the task of marriage, the purpose of marriage, and the secret of marriage. Firstly, the Bible tells us about the power for marriage. There's a little phrase in these verses that's so easy to overlook. It's there right at the beginning of the passage, and it's repeated in verse 7, and it's addressed to both wives and husbands. Verse 1, wives, In the same way. Verse 7, husbands, in the same way. What same way? Well, remember that just before this, Peter addresses slaves, and he says to them in chapter 2 and verse 18, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. Literally, with all fear. And we saw that this is not fear of the master, but rather fear of God. So, slaves out of fear for God, submit yourselves to your masters. Wives in the same way, with reverent fear for God, do the following. Husbands in the same way, with reverent fear of God, do the following. Whatever else Peter may have to say about marriage, his starting place for both husbands and wives is the fear of God. Remember, we've seen in this series that this doesn't mean cringing, servile fear, being scared, but rather respectful relationship. In Psalm 130, the psalmist prays, With you, Lord, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. God's loving kindness to us produces fear, not being scared, but rather a respectful relationship. One writer puts it this way, Fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something. To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. It means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful That's why the more we experience God's grace and forgiveness, the more we experience a trembling awe and wonder before the greatness of all that he is and has done for us. Fearing him means bowing before him out of amazement at his glory and beauty. Now, why is fear of God important in marriage? Well, because of the tendency that we have to expect that our marriage partner will meet all our needs and desires. You see, all of us come into marriage wanting someone who accepts us as we are and who will fulfil all our needs and desires. John Tierney uh, once wrote a humorous piece in the New York Times in which he said, During my years living alone, I always knew that my own requirements in a woman were perfectly reasonable. All I wanted was a nice novelist slash astronaut with a background in fashion modelling. All of us long to be fully known and fully loved. And perhaps for a time it seems that the other person does do that for us. But the Bible tells us that you and I were made for God. All of us have a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts, and no human being, no matter how marvellous, will ever be able to meet a God-shaped vacuum in our heart. Only God knows us completely, and loves us anyway. That doesn't mean that my wife's love for me can't approximate God's love for me. That's one of the beauties and mysteries of marriage, as we'll see in a moment. That doesn't mean that I shouldn't try to love my wife as God loves me. As a husband, God's word commands me to do that. It just means that if I'm primarily dependent on my wife's love for me and expecting her to meet my deepest needs and desires, that is to put a burden on her that she cannot bear, and it means that I will always be disappointed. And conversely, if my wife is depending on me to meet all her needs and desires she too will be disappointed. So in a marriage, you have two people who are needy and flawed. And if they try and find their significance and meaning in one another, it's not going to work. As one writer puts it, if you add two vacuums to each other, you only get a bigger and stronger vacuum, a giant sucking sound. So, Peter is expecting that wives and husbands will live in reverent fear of God, that they will depend on Him to meet their greatest needs and desires. In verse 5, Peter uses the model of the holy women of the past who put their hope in God. That's why I read all the way down to verse 15, where Peter says to all Christians, but in your hearts... Set apart Christ as Lord. Remember, that was the principle that Peter described back in chapter 2 and verse 13, where he said this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. In other words, we're to serve everybody by doing good. And then he says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Remember, we said that these verses can only be understood backwards. If we are God's slaves, in other words, living in loving submission to him, then we are truly free free to live life to the full, and truly free to love and serve others. When I know who I am in Christ, when I get my sense of identity in who He says I am, then that frees me to truly love and serve others. The power for my marriage is my relationship with God. What does that look like practically? Well, as Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 6, we are to go into our room, close the door and pray to our Father. It's the daily habit of speaking to God in prayer, reading his word, not just to open up anywhere and read a verse, but carefully and systematically going through the Bible. It means studying God's word So perhaps getting some Bible reading notes or a study Bible that can help us explain some of the more difficult passages of Scripture. It means listening to hymns and songs and worshipping God. It means practising the spiritual disciplines of silence and solitude, fasting, journaling, stewardship, evangelism, serving, confession and meditation. Husbands, if you want to see your marriage improve, spend half an hour a day alone with God. Wives, if you want to see your marriage improve, spend half an hour a day alone with God. And pray for your wife, and pray for your husband. The picture that Peter gives us here is not of two needy people holding on to one another, trying to find their significance and purpose and meaning in each other. Rather, Peter assumes that husband and wife have settled the big questions of life, why they were made by God, who they are in Christ. And once they've done that, they're able to fulfil the task of marriage. That's the second thing that the Bible tells us here about marriage. Peter gives us the task of marriage. And the task of marriage is selfless service. Look at Peter's words to wives and husbands here. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect, literally with honour. It's the same word that Peter uses earlier when he commands us to honour the king. We'll look more carefully at the specifics of these commands in a later sermon, but at this point it's important to read Peter's instructions within the wider context of the New Testament. Because when you read through the New Testament, you discover that the things that husbands and wives are called to do here are actually tasks that are urged on all believers for one another. Ephesians 5.21 Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Romans 12 verse 10, Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. All believers are urged to submit to one another. All believers are urged to honour one another. All believers are urged to encourage one another and build one another up. If these are things that I am to do to my Christian brothers and sisters in the church, how much more am I not to do them for my wife or for my husband? Paul sums this up in Galatians chapter 5, where he says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. That is the task of marriage, not to live for myself, but to humbly serve my marriage partner in love. Now, immediately we encounter a problem. It's called sinful selfishness, and it's what is at the root of our marriage problems. Let me quote from Tim Keller's book here. In Western culture today, you decide to get married because you feel an attraction to the other person. You think he or she is wonderful. But a year or two later, or just as often a month or two, three things usually happen. First, you begin to find out how selfish this wonderful person is. Second, you discover that the wonderful person has been going through a similar experience and he or she begins to tell you how selfish you are. And third, though you acknowledged it in part, you conclude that your spouse's selfishness is more problematic than your own. So what do you do then? There are at least two paths to take. First, you could decide that your woundedness is more fundamental than your self-centeredness and determine that unless your spouse sees the problems you have and takes care of you, it's not going to work out. Of course, your spouse will probably not do this, especially if he or she is thinking almost the exact same thing about you. By the way, you could decide to leave at that point and try again with someone new, but why discard this partner for someone else, only to discover that person's deep hidden flaws? All what can happen is the development of emotional distance, and perhaps a slowly negotiated kind of ceasefire. There is an unspoken agreement not to talk about some things. There are some things your spouse does that you hate, but you stop talking about them, as long as he or she stops bothering you about certain other things. No one changes for the other. There is only tit-for-tat bargaining. Couples who settle for this kind of relationship may look happily married after forty years, But when it's time for the anniversary photo up, the kiss will be forced. The alternative to leaving, or this unhappy truce marriage, is to determine to see your own selfishness as a fundamental problem and to treat it more seriously than you do your spouses. You should stop making excuses for your selfishness. You should begin to root it out as it's revealed to you, and you should do so regardless of what your spouse is doing. If two spouses say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, you have the prospect for a truly great marriage. How do I serve my marriage partner practically? Well, it's interesting to see what Peter says to husbands in verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. The NIV is trying to capture a Greek phrase which literally means live with your wife according to knowledge. So, Peter is speaking here about understanding. Pastor Chris Wright says that perhaps the NIV thought that by writing Husbands, understand your wives... They might have produced the most difficult command in all of Scripture. But this is the sense behind Peter's words here. Live together with your wife with knowledge, with insight, with understanding. See her as a person, as a woman. Know her for who she is. Several years ago, Gary Chapman wrote a book called The Five Love Languages, And in it, he points out that we all experience love in different ways, and we often express our love for our marriage partner in the same way that we experience love. So, for example, a wife might say to her husband, you never say you love me. And he might respond, how can you say that? I keep your car full of petrol, I fixed all the windows you asked me to, and I cleaned the kitchen last night. The husband feels loved when his wife does things for him, and he's expressing that back to her, even though she feels loved when he tells her he loves her. The five love languages that Chapman described are words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, and physical touch. Maybe pause this recording right now and ask your partner what their primary love language is, and then share yours too. Another practical point when it comes to service is that actions of love lead to feelings of love. C.S. Lewis points this out in his book Mere Christianity. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. That's why in several places the Bible can command us to love, because love isn't primarily a feeling. It's an action, and that action can lead to feeling. This brings us, thirdly, to the purpose of marriage. Why do I engage in selfless, sacrificial service of my marriage partner? What's the purpose of doing that? Well, it's to make them and me more like Jesus. Again, this is something that as believers we are doing for one another in community. And if ordinary believers are to do this for one another, how much more shouldn't married couples be doing this for each other. There are two little phrases in Peter's words here that I think imply this for us. Firstly, in what Peter says to the wife, verse 1, Wives, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. The goal of the wife's behaviour here is to bring her husband to God, to make him holy, to make him the man God intended him to be. And then Peter's words to the man in verse 7. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. He's not just meaning the gift of living, rather he's speaking about what he described back in verse 1. In his great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This, I believe, is a vision of husband and wife together in front of God, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, glorious. And what Peter hints at here in these verses, the Apostle Paul states more explicitly in Ephesians chapter 5, where he speaks to husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. So our job in marriage is to serve our marriage partner in every possible way to help them become the woman or man of God that God intended them to be. Let me quote Tim Keller's book again here. When two Christians who fully understand this stand before the minister all decked out in their wedding finery, they realize they're not just playing dress up. What they're saying is that someday they are going to be standing not before the minister, but before the Lord. And they will turn to see each other without spot and blemish. And they hope to hear God say, Well done, good and faithful servants. Over the years you've lifted one another up to me. You sacrificed for one another. You held one another up with prayer and with thanksgiving. You confronted each other. You rebuked each other. You hugged and you loved each other and continually pushed each other toward me. And now look at you. You're radiant. What keeps marriage going is your commitment to your spouse's holiness. You're committed to his or her beauty. You're committed to his greatness and perfection. You're committed to her honesty and passion for the things of God. That's your job as a spouse. Any lesser goal than that, any smaller purpose... And you're just playing at being married. The purpose of marriage is holiness. And just to say that it's not a choice between happiness and holiness, this holiness leads to genuine happiness and fulfilment. But there's one final thing that Peter tells us in his vision for marriage in these verses. Peter describes for us the secret of marriage. That little phrase, in the same way, doesn't just take us back all the way to what Peter says about slaves. It also takes us back to the words that Peter has just said about Jesus. Have a look back to chapter 2 and verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives in the same way. Husbands in the same way. What Peter is saying here then is that a good Christian marriage reflects the gospel, and that the gospel lived out transforms a Christian marriage. The Gospel tells me that I am more sinful than I could ever know, but more loved than I can imagine. And if my marriage reflects the Gospel, then my wife or husband knows me fully and loves me anyway. To be loved but not known is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is like being loved by God. As Tim Keller puts it, the gospel gives you both the power and pattern for your marriage. On the one hand, the experience of marriage will unveil the beauty and depths of the gospel to you. It will drive you further into reliance on it. On the other hand, a greater understanding of the gospel will help you experience deeper and deeper union with each other as the years go on. Well, our time is gone, and there's still much more to say about these verses. But I do hope and pray that what we've looked at today would have given us a fresh vision for marriage. The power for marriage. The fear of God setting apart Christ as Lord, the task of marriage, selfless service, the purpose of marriage, holiness, becoming like Jesus, the secret of marriage, the gospel. Whether you are yet to marry, whether you're in a comfortable marriage, whether you're in perhaps a strained marriage, I trust that this vision will give us fresh dedication and resolve and inspiration to be the men and women that God has called us to be. Amen.